right the foghorn and you know what that means it is time for the cavish ships podcast where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and doggone it shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day i'm chris cavis and i'm chris cervello coming up it takes a lot of people to build a ship and even more to build a giant warship where thousands of shipbuilders each play a role Author Mike Fabie spent quality time with some of the people building the world's largest warship, the aircraft carrier John F. Kennedy, CVN-79, and he'll be here to talk about what it takes to do the job. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. China is preparing to launch the new Type 003 aircraft carrier under construction at the huge Zhangnan shipyard on Shangjing Island near Shanghai. The launch was widely expected to have been scheduled for June 3rd, but an online notice posted June 2nd by the Chinese Maritime Safety Administration indicates the float-off has been delayed until June 30th. The ship is estimated to be over 1,000 feet long with an extreme beam of about 246 feet, roughly similar to U.S. Nimitz-class carriers. Although at about 85,000 tons full load displacement, the Chinese ship will be a bit smaller. Like the U.S. Ford-class carriers, the ship will have electromagnetic catapults, but it will not be powered by nuclear reactors. Rather, the Chinese ship is expected to, to be driven by an all-gas turbine power plant. In Russia, a photo was published May 31st showing the Russian Navy's only aircraft carrier, Admiral Kuznetsov, in a new large dry dock in Murmansk. The ship was taken out of service in 2017 for a major overhaul, but was severely damaged in October 2018 when the floating dry dock holding the ship sank, damaging the carrier. Dry docking work was postponed as there was no other dock in Russia that could take the ship, and the Kuznetsov was damaged again when fires broke out in December 2019. An entirely new dry dock had to be built in Murmansk so that the overhaul could be finished. Russian officials have said the ship is to be returned to service in 2023, but even that might be overly optimistic. Israeli media reported June 2nd that an Israeli Navy Dolphin-class submarine and the missile corvettes Elat and Hetz operated in the Red Sea during May as part of the larger Chariots of Fire exercise by the Israeli Defense Forces. The deployment was characterized by the Jerusalem Post as a direct message to Iran. The Israeli Navy did not comment on the cruise until after the ships returned to the Israeli naval base at Elat. And the USS Sioux City passed southbound through the Suez Canal on May 28th and into the Red Sea, becoming the first littoral combat ship to enter U.S. Central Command's operating area. Sioux City was important at the Saudi naval base at Jeddah by June 1st. The LCS is expected to continue on during June to the Persian Gulf, where support facilities have been built at U.S. Naval Support Activity Manama, Bahrain. In Washington on June 1st, Admiral Linda Fagan relieved retiring Admiral Carl Schultz to become the 27th Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard. Fagan, a 1985 graduate of the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, is also the first woman to lead a U.S. military service. Following tradition, Fagan wore shoulder boards passed down from a senior officer. In her case, those of Admiral Owen Seiler, the service's 15th Commandant, who in 1975 opened the Coast Guard Academy doors to women. Retiring Commandant Schultz led the Coast Guard for four years, beginning in June 2018. And in old ship news, the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk, CV-63, arrived at Brownsville, Texas on May 31st, ending a four-and-a-half-month voyage under tow from Bremerton, Washington. 
commissioned in 1961, the Hawk served nearly 48 years before being decommissioned in 2009 and entering the reserve fleet. She'll be scrapped by International Shipbreaking Limited, where the assault ship Bonham Richard, decommissioned in 2020 after a major fire in San Diego, is also rapidly being recycled. Anticipating the Kitty Hawk's last port of call, a large crowd gathered at the entrance to the Brownsville Ship Channel to watch, cheer, and wax nostalgic as the great ship passed one last time. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right, it's time to move to our discussion segment. Um, joining us this week is Mike Faby. Um, Mike is a reporter that has spent years covering the military and naval affairs beat, um, working with National Geographic Traveler, The Economist Group, Defense News, Aviation Week, and now with Jane's Fighting Ships. Mike has collected more than two dozen reporting awards, including the prestigious Timothy White Award. Um, Mike is out with a new book entitled Heavy Metal, The Hard Days and Nights of the Shipyard Workers Who Build America's Supercarriers. So we're really excited to have Mike join us this week. Mike, thank you very much uh, for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. As we mentioned at the top of the show, and as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, your book comes out here. I believe it it hits stands officially ne next week, and then you'll do uh, um, you know some of the publicity associated with the book tour. But tell the audience a little bit about this book, and you know why you decided to talk about this particular uh, subject matter. I mean, it, it's uh, subject matter that you know has been discussed. Um, you know, throughout the years, but I mean, you really kind of dove deep into it. Um, and, and when you started the book, I'm not sure you knew that there was a pandemic on the horizon. So that kind of um, influenced how you told the story. But how did you get here? And kind of, you know, what are the big takeaways, uh, you know, as we start this uh, discussion segment off? Wow, that's a that's an awful lot there. But I'll, I'll kind of uh, get from the very beginning, if you will. I'm not, you know, when I was born, but um, I first started looking at the yard um, back when I started my career more than 30 years ago. I was going down to Newport News for a job interview at the Daily Press, the local paper there. And I got there the night before and I decided to take a ride around town, see what the town was like. And I just drove past the yard and just it literally stopped me in my tracks, pull up the road. I mean, I grew up in Philly, so I was used to a, a you know, a good cityscape you know kind of got an idea of but i'd see nothing like that see nothing like you you had this aircraft carrier that was right off the road almost i mean it was so close and just to see as part of the city and i was just like what did, how did they do that i mean it was really that simple it was like i mean you know they built that thing here and so how did they do that and so i was just always mesmerized by that i always sort of what tell that story from the very beginning when I first started working there. And finally, um, a couple of days, decades ago, I started covering a yard as a reporter for the Daily Press. And I got to know the people there and I was even more mesmerized by what, what they did and how they did it. And I always just wanted to tell that story. And so finally, um, I got I got a chance to do that. I mean, that, that's basically really what it came down to. I had to, you know, so an agent who believed in me. And we took the story or the stories um, to the publisher and he said, yeah, let's go for it. You, you know, at the time I suggested a story in building a Reagan because he had a strike at the yard. So that was really interesting. He said, no, let's do something more current. Let's do the Reagan. I mean, rather, let's do the John F. Kennedy. 
And that was great. Uh, but right up till, as you said, the moment where, oh, where they had COVID. One of the questions that I had, you know, when you first told me that you were going to write the book and then, you know, you were nice enough to give me an advanced copy and I had a chance to read it. I didn't know if there'd be much in it for me as somebody that had been, you know, around the Navy for a long time, had served on an aircraft carrier. I, I was surprised there was a lot in there that I didn't realize. Right. I mean, so what do for the people that read this book, what would you say kind of are the kind of big picture things if you're familiar with the Navy that you might not realize? And then if you're not as familiar with shipbuilding side of the Navy, you know, what, what are some things that you would sort of point people towards? I don't want you to give the book away, but um, you, you know, there, there seems to be a little bit of something for everybody. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I, I go with the last part first. And that's, if, you know, what, what can just almost like the regular person, if you will, someone has nothing to do with the Navy or even shipbuilding kind of take away. It's just this whole idea of it, 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 we, we hear an awful lot in, in the, the current culture about the bygone days and this forgotten era of, of uh, you know, American blue collar, American labor, you know, doing the, the, the American things that they do with manufacturing, things like that. And here you have in that part of Tidewater, Virginia, just that, that the whole idea of going in every day, punching the clock and do some incredible work. Um, so, and, and I think that anyone who kind of punches the clock out there will come away with, you know, yeah, this, this, they do kind of like the same thing we do in terms of punching the clock and worrying about where we can break for lunch. But imagine if you have to break for lunch from the bowels of a carrier building, that kind of thing. So that's the, the kind of like every band picture I want to take from that. And then from someone who's in the Navy, I wanted to give an idea of, of the, these are stories of the, the region, the people who do this work. And they do it in, you know, they go in there. It's, it's very interesting that you have 30,000 workers on any given year at Newport News. Um, and not all of them, of course, work on a carrier, but still they're all going in the yard. And so it's like a city within a city, you know, building a floating city. And so within that city, that, that, whole big grand size of things you're going to have diverse people going in and they're going to be from every creed from every color from every mind concept you can think of and yet they leave it all at the gates you know they have to leave it at the gates if they want to go inside and build a carrier that's something you can't have on your mind worry about someone else's politics or anything like that so the first thing they want to do is make sure they do their good job the second thing is they want to leave that shift you know, alive and in one piece. And, and just importantly, they want to make sure that the workmate leaves that ship, you know, that shift alive in one piece. And what I hope that people bring a sense from this is like, if they can do that day after day, year after year, you know, the sense of hope that, you know, we can put everything aside too. I, I, that's a weird thing to say, I guess, but really that's what I'm hoping they can get from this. There's, and within that, there's an awful lot of stories. There's every kind of character you can imagine. Um, they, they face so much adversity and try and put this character together, and yet they still manage to pull through. And partly because they had this whole idea of we're just going to do this. We're just going to go in. We're going to do our job. I'll make sure you get through okay, and you get through okay, and we're going to come out and do this right. So Mike, give us some examples of some of these people. What what are some of your favorite little anecdotes here? Okay, so the um, the ones I love are the uh, uh, most, I think, are the generational folks. And so these are folks who basically their father start the yard, 
And then next thing you know, they're at the yard. And so you have like Big Ed Elliott and Little Ed Elliott, for example. Big Ed started way back in, started back in the 688s, you know, going down to the sub and, and everything. It talks about things like, for example, that they would, uh, they had to make sure that the, the uh, submarine was watertight. And so they would put the ship into water, of course, to make sure and everything like that. Well, if they got a newbie in there, they would skirt water, water bottles in there and pretend the sub was sinking and have people freaking out. Um, and Little Ed, who was the bound determined not to go into the yard because in part because his father worked there, went to make his own way, but still there's a draw there. There's something that brings them back. And so he went into the yard anyway, became a designer. You know, that kind of thing is that just your generational thing that this yard sort of just is a part of their lives. And then one of the biggest examples of someone I thought who really kind of showed a, a kind of like not only a spirit of the yard, but the spirit of the times was a guy named Bill Bowser, um, who had gone in the yard. His father had worked in the yard. He was, they came up from Carolina, as many of them did, a Carolina dirt farmer. And that was one of the things. So if you're around from that region, you're going to, you know, be a dirt farmer. And then possibly if you want to move up, you go to the yard or you maybe go in the military. But he, they went to the yard and he came into the yard, Bill Bowser did. And his father's footsteps, even, you know, after being in the military, after going to college and everything, and he kind of came in the, in the 60s with the idea of, of bringing in sort of like Malcolm X kind of thing. He was going to lead this kind of like revolution in the yard, uh, you know, with most minority people. And yet he became a labor leader working with other white workers there to bring in the steel workers to the South. And that was an amazing thing while doing this work. And he went on, you know, to work there for three decades doing it this way. And that was, you know, amazing kind of courage type of thing where, you know, they, they faced uh, fights, they faced um, state police at one point. Uh, they faced down just an awful lot of uh, the, the whole mentality down there. We don't want any union down here. Um, so that kind of thing I found very interesting. The, those generational stories, I, I, I agree. I mean, they um, they resonated with me as somebody that served in the in the Navy. Um, you, you know, my my dad was in the Navy. It sort of became the the family business. My brother has served in the Navy, and so those types of stories uh, certainly uh, cer certainly resonate as you you know kind of stories within the the larger story. Um, I you write about Newport News, but you've covered a lot of different shipyards. You, you and Chris Cavis. Um, is there, you know, what what is unique about Newport News in this book um, and, and the HII world? And what is, you know, in your opinion, sort of the same at every shipyard you've, you've kind of covered? I mean, what, you, you know, are, are there, is there two sides to the coin as you, as you interview these folks and as you live this? Um, or is this really, in your opinion, just a look at Newport News? I would say one of the things about Newport News is is the way that it just dominates everything like if you go up to like for example um to to groton i mean the yard dominates a lot but it there's so much other stuff going on there there's other industry there there's other type of businesses there and everything like that in newport news i mean it, it is you know like, as i said you know yeah, someone put it, said, yeah, we got the big three down here. We've got the yard, we got the military, and we got Walmart. <laughs> That's the way they, they kind of looked at it. And so it's just this dominating force that attracts from all over. Um, at the same time, you know, when you have these people working for generations, 
the pay there has been relatively low compared to like other places in the country or even other places in the region. Like they would always say you can make more broom beer, you know, up at, 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 uh, at the Bush plant, just up the road in Williamsburg, then, you know, then you can make at the yard. And so there's this kind of thing, like it attracts a lot of people. There's, there's been this kind of like angst there and, and if it was a northern yard, you would have a lot more, the, the union would be a lot more, uh, say, proactive in a lot of ways. So you, you've had this kind of thing that I find different down there, um, say, north to south, for example, where the, where the union has tried to make strides. The very fact that got a union there was something else. But the union has made strides, but it's not in the same kind of like very strident way that you might see up in a the, in the northern yard. Um, and, and the other thing is just how you get to know uh, the folks at the yard. Um, you know, Southerners especially are kind of very slow to accept, you know, folks come down as they call come here um, and haven't lived down there. I mean, you can live down almost forever. You'll always be a come here if you're, unless you're from there. And so if you want to get to know them, you know, it's not a place where they go out to a lot of bars. That's just not a kind of thing they do. It's more like they go out to barbecues. And so when you, you know, you really have to, you know, get to know them a lot personally before they're ready to open up to you, that kind of thing. And I found that very, you know, they're not the kind of people just like uh, at North, you'll find more people willing to like talk to her up the bat than will down in the South. So that was one of the things. Uh, but the, the one thing that is once you're in there, once you're part of fraternity, if you will, then you are really part of fraternity. So, so you're really focused a lot on the people in this book. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you and I have talked uh, over the years and, and uh, of course you're reporting on this um, and, and the people was the, it is the focus of the, of the book. But of course, this is a pretty controversial class. These are the largest warships ever built. They are the most expensive warships ever built. And they've had their full share of problems for an awful lot of reasons that are well known and have been going on for frankly, almost 20 years now. Um, programmatically, what were some of the things that you ran into here? You know, you talk about um, uh, Trump coming down and um, and, and um, former Secretary of the Navy Richard Spencer saying, "If I don't, if you don't get the elevators working, you can fire me." And of course, they didn't all work, and he was fired. Um, you know, Trump going down and uh, didn't like the the catapults. You know, you got to have goddamn steam. You know, uh, which is a phrase that in the and, and the folks uh, reporting on this stuff has um, got instant infamy. Um, what, what, what were some of the major aspects of this that you thought that you, maybe you, you picked up more about while you were doing this? Well, one of the things that um, became apparent as, as the Kennedys start progressing was how much they were robbing Peter to play Paul. In other words, they were robbing from the Kennedy to fix the problems on the Ford. Um, you, you saw some of the report out later on, but that was mostly just like, they're talking, uh, I remember looking at some stories about computer parts, stuff like this, but they were, this was people, this is major resources. Uh, you would have, uh, you know, some, some of the, the trades workers going in and, and putting together some significant parts of the Kennedy together. And they would come in to get it to, ready to install it somewhere. And where is it? Oh, we need that for the Ford now. Um, and, you know, there's one part in the book where basically some of the, the Kennedy people were, had to sit down 
you know, with the, the carrier people there said, I'm sorry, we need to make the four look right. And so there was an awful lot of taking that over um, in a way that that really kind of put the Kennedy back. Um, I, I personally don't think, I think they would have a lot of trouble meeting that earlier schedule on the Kennedy, if, if not for COVID and if not Congress to come through and so we're, we want, you know, there are 35 changes on there, for example. Um, and partly, or and no small part, because of how much they were taken from the Kennedy to make the Ford work properly. So I think that was the one thing that really kind of, uh, of stood out uh, with me with that, um, because they, they had a really good team on the Kennedy, and they really were taking a lot of lessons learned from the Ford. But, you know, part of that is, and that got held up was, instead of you having the workers coming from the Ford back to the Kennedy to teach the Kennedy people how this should be done. They were staying on the Ford to fix the Ford. And again, you were taking a lot of people from the Kennedy and putting them on the Ford. So that was one thing that kind of stood out. How about the health of the shipbuilding industry writ large? Um, th this, as I read the book, I kind of, in, in addition to kind of following the stories and relating them to my own experiences, either being on ships in the yard or, um, you know, hearing stories or, or telling stories about shipbuilding, I couldn't help but sort of think about kind of the warning that people say that this is a perishable, not just skill, but labor base. And, um, you know, what is your sense of how healthy this, um, this labor base is? And, you, you know, is it going to be around for a while or is it in need of help either from the companies or from the, you know, the government writ large? Um, you know, can you talk a little bit about, about that before we wrap up? Yeah, I think they're in trouble. Um, and there are two relatively recent things that sort of uh, kind of really had me like uh, more troubling than I thought when uh, as I started doing the book. Um, one was the recent contract that was signed by Newport News. And in that contract, it was, I mean, more generous than, than one would expect. I certainly didn't expect to be so generous in making sure not when they attract new talent, but equally as important, maybe even more important, to keep the talent there. Um, they put in you know, certain uh, parts of it that basically you could increase to up a couple levels in your pay in an incredibly short period of time, just to make sure you stayed in the yard. And now Newport News just announced recently they were going a big hiring spree. Um, you know, that in itself may not mean anything, but given the fact that or, you know, every industry is having a problem hiring people, given that contract, uh, they're gonna have some, you know, say they quote unquote workforce capacity issues. You're going to see that. That's where they're having their biggest problem right now. And I think they're going to even have a bigger problem going forward with that. Again, you can go up the road at, at a place that's uh, uh, a lot nicer to work and uh, <laughs> a lot safer to work at, like at Bush Breweries. I mean, other places around where you can get decent work that pays more money and, and everything like that, let alone around the country. So I, I think, again, I think there's some issues there. Well, Mike, thank you very much. I would encourage folks to uh, to grab a copy of the book, uh, to, to read it. Um, and, and again, I think that whether you're somebody like uh, Chris or, or me that have been around this for a, a long time, or, or if you're somebody that is, you know, of the of the aviation ilk, or if you just follow this, you know, tangentially, 
Um, I, I think that there are really good stories here that will resonate. I actually think it'd be a great summer book uh, to, to read. I've encouraged my wife to read it, who's a, a voracious reader. Um, so thank you for joining us. Good luck with the um, uh, with the you know book rollout. But actually, before I let you go, do you want to just sort of pub your um, your, your uh, event at the Hudson Institute, uh, which yeah. is coming up next week? Yep, on the um, so it's on the thirteenth, and it's got the Hudson Institute so six to seven. I'm sitting down with Brian Clark. Um, who anyone in the community knows Brian Clark. He promises a couple of, uh, of gotcha questions and, I, and if anyone can do it, Brian Clark can. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I, I, you know, hopefully we'll get some, some debate going um, on, because there's a lot of good stuff here. Uh, the great stories about the ship, you know, ship our workers. Um, but as Chris mentioned, there's an awful lot here about the carriers. Um, and I would say, you know, not for anything, but, you know, Everyone's talking about the new Top Gun movie. Well, here you have the actual Top Guns who help plan design the ship. And what I would kind of like to call the Top Gun, the master shipbuilders of industry who build that ship and, and put it all together. Um, so um, that, that, that's, that's my pitch for that. No, that's great. Well, thank you again for joining us. We look forward to having you back again. Yeah, thanks, Mike. My pleasure. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right, time for Squawk Box. And Mr. Cervello has some thoughts on what ships mean to people. Chris, our audience, probably better than most, understand that ships are special, that serving on a ship is different from checking out a piece of gear from the motor pool or armory, or even the hangar and flight line. A ship is where you live. It's where you work, where you eat and sleep. It's your home. Like with most places you call home, you build an emotional connection. Sometimes it's a love, sometimes it's a hate. Sometimes it's a bit of both. USS Harry S. Truman was my home for three years, and I still perk up and get excited when I see images or hear stories about CBN 75. The very same way I do when someone says Hollywood, Maryland, my boyhood home, or Palm Coast, Florida, where my family lives today. Even now, I look at the Truman picture hanging next to my desk, and I beam with pride. It's for this reason that I have great respect for the men and women who build and maintain our nation's warships. It's their hard work that brings our homes away from home alive and keeps them in fighting shape. It's their hard work that helps spread and maintain freedom around the globe. And it's their blood and sweat that helps keep sailors safe when they sail those ships into harm's way. We remain a power of the sea because of their skill, and we need to recognize and protect this in important industry that has helped keep America prosperous and free since its founding more than two centuries ago. For years, people thanked me for my service in uniform. Well, I'd like to end this squawk by saying thank you to the thousands of shipbuilders across the country. Your skill and hard work does not go unnoticed, and it is very much appreciated. All right. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavis. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Hey.